21st Century Women on Cambridge 105 Radio and HCR 104 FM. In this edition of 21st Century Women, we speak to Kelly Mansfield, the editor of a new magazine for people suffering from mental and physical health problems. Sue Shorter talks about her work with Operation Christmas Child and describes what it was like watching gifts being distributed to children in Swaziland. Rabia Nassimi arrived in the UK as a five-year-old, having escaped the Taliban in Afghanistan. Her family spoke no English and at first struggled. Rabia is now doing a PhD at Cambridge University. She tells us about her life. And Liz Kelly takes a wry look at Christmas preparations. That's all coming up on this edition of 21st Century Women. Well, in the studio with me, we have Bobby Jones. Good evening. And uh, Liz Kelly, I think, is arriving imminently, but not quite here yet. And me, Linda Ness. Well, we hear many stories about refugees fleeing persecution, some of whom come to the UK, but we rarely hear about what happens to them after asylum is granted. Most continue with their lives just like the rest of us, but some go on to be high achievers. I spoke to the very inspirational Rabio Nassimi, who arrived with her family at the age of five after fleeing the Taliban in Afghanistan. Rabia is now doing a PhD at Cambridge University. Today we're going to hear the remarkable story of Rabia Nassimi. At the age of five, her family escaped Afghanistan, fleeing from the Taliban. They crossed Europe and sought asylum in the UK. And 18 years on, Rabia is doing a PhD at Cambridge University. What do you remember, first of all, of living in Afghanistan? You were very young when you left, I know that. Do you remember anything? Um, I actually don't. I remember very little about Afghanistan and also about the journey. So I was five when we arrived to the UK and my memory doesn't go back that far. (laughs) But what I do remember was arriving to the UK. And I remember being greeted by the border agency and me and my sister, who was eight at the time, were given some sweets (laughs) <laughs> to kind of enjoy whilst um, they were speaking to my parents and trying to find out more about how we ended up here. Your parents, I mean, they must have been absolutely terrified to make that, that, that very risky journey. My parents fled the Taliban regime. Now, my parents had gone abroad to study whilst they were in their late teenage years. They were studying in Ukraine. Um, and so when they were going back into Afghanistan, it was quite new for them and the regime had changed and everything was so different. And as my parents were academics... Now, they would be at greater risk of being targeted Mm -hmm. by a group such as the Taliban. And also, my parents had been living in a more liberal Western society for a considerable amount of time. They knew that staying in Afghanistan wouldn't be the best decision to make, both for them, but also for the family. For me and my sister at the time, were quite young, and they believed in education and working, and they didn't want us to be deprived of that. So it was a decision that they then took, which was very risky and dangerous. At the time when they left Afghanistan, they didn't know where they'll end up and what country was kind of destined for them. So they weren't heading for a particular country? They 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 set off? I think it's when you want to leave a country and you don't see it as being the right place for you anymore. You Mm -hmm. don't necessarily have a country in mind or you're not planning ahead. It's not like a holiday. You just want to leave the country and search for safety. You want to go into a country where they will receive you with open arms. They will grant you maybe citizenship and you'll have the opportunities that you can't back home. Now, for my parents, having left Afghanistan, they were taking this journey and there were other people taking a similar route, um, fleeing the Taliban. And on their way to Europe, they started to speak to people, other refugees, and like kind of ask, where, where are you going? What country have you chosen? Why have you chosen this particular country? It was at that stage when the UK was a country that stood out for them. Now, my parents wanted to end up in a country where both themselves and us at the time would have the right to access education, we would be not labelled perhaps for being a refugee 
and we'd be able to progress with our lives as anyone else um, in that country. Like it would be the worst case scenario if you had left such a dangerous country and took all this risk and ended up in a society where people were racist to you yes. or other forms of perhaps pressure was put upon you. Then you start to just question whether it's it was really worth it. It's the frying pan into the fire. Yes, yes, of course. So for them, once they heard these stories and uh, exchanges from other refugees about countries in perhaps Europe that could provide them with um, a chance to have a second home, the UK was the one that, that they then chose. And what was the route that they took to get in? The journey was through land, but also sea. It was one where you'd perhaps take hours walking whilst also going on like makeshift boats. It was quite a variety. And as you can imagine, like Afghanistan's in the heart of Asia. Mm -hmm. I think it takes around 10 to 11 hours on the plane. So the journey wasn't a short one. You said that you wanted to find a country that you'd be safe, there'd be no racism. How do you find the UK? Has it fitted all of your expectations or of those of your parents? So I arrived when I was five. My sister was eight. We both started primary school um, in London. We managed to kind of pick up the language a lot faster than my parents did. Did they speak English at all when no, they arrived? No, no one in my family spoke wow. English when we arrived. Okay. Um, so for me and my sister, it was easier to pick up. We were constantly within the education mm-hmm. environment. So for us, it wasn't that much of a difficult transition. But with my parents, they were educated abroad. They knew how to speak their own language, but they also spoke Russian. And for them to pick up a third language was slightly more challenging and now in terms of challenges I think in any society there'll be challenges that exist I think what's important is that whilst I was in education I didn't necessarily feel like I had a label attached to me and that people were looking at me or treating me in a certain way because of that particular label and presumably your parents are academic so they'd be very very encouraging and helping you yeah and I think my parents were kind of pushing us a step further as well they were like we've made this journey we've gone through all this risk and we've done this partly for you so now that you're here <laughs> no pressure like you have <laughs> you have no excuse but to but to study hard and kind of try and give back to both the society in which has hosted us which is the UK and and hopefully in the future if you can maybe do something back for Afghanistan as well And is that something that you are doing? So yes, um, my father and my mother, they had the idea of setting up an organisation because they felt like integration for them was slightly challenging, not having any family, not having any friends in the UK and anyone to give you the initial kind of steps and guidance. My my father had the idea of setting up an organisation. Now he met with the local MP and also some local councillors. And now they were very interested and they said, it's great, like if you are happy to take on the work. And two years on from that, so 2003, the organisation was established and it, was, uh, it had a charity number and everything was quite formal. And so that charity was set up to serve refugees, not only people from Afghanistan, but also surrounding regions, to give them the kind of educational guidance and support so that they can transition into the UK society a lot easier than perhaps my family or my parents. The name is the Afghanistan and Central Asian Association, and it runs in the southeast and the west of London. When you arrived here and you're at school and you're settling in, very, very different culture, I'm imagining, from Afghanistan. Were your parents ever concerned about that? So my parents didn't have any concerns, as far as I can remember. I think one other aspect of life in the UK, which is, which attracts quite a lot of people from different backgrounds, but also refugees, is the kind of tolerance and diversity in the society. And that you can come into this country and you can keep your mother tongue, you can you can keep your cultural and religious traditions, mm-hmm. but you can also improve your English language and become an, a better citizen. So um, it's about having a dual identity as well. It's about being able to kind of keep touch of your own background whilst also feeling British. Now, um, because I've kept touch of my my own language, I can't speak my mother tongue, which is Farsi, um, I've managed to keep in touch with family back home as well. So every time we've gone back to Afghanistan, I've been able to speak to my aunties and uncles and knowing the language also enables you to get a good grasp of the culture and fit in, which which is important because although you've, you've come to a new country and you had to you know leave your own you don't want to completely 
feel so distant from it as well you want to be able to have a connection and um and be able to understand what what still happens and what goes on in the country which which you which had to you leave. Could, when you go back there you must sometimes think this could have been my life yeah i think well i'm 23 years old and i've just started my phd and a 23 year old's girl's story or journey in afghanistan is very different to mine if if i was lucky i would perhaps have finished school and that's if i'm in a relatively peaceful area of afghanistan and my family and my wider you know network of extended family are okay with girls education i mean even that within certain like provinces and rural areas in afghanistan is still an issue which hasn't been fully addressed if i was to be the most fortunate i would have perhaps finished university but even that does wouldn't have meant that i'm i'm working perhaps i my parents or my family or would be thinking about me getting married so i think it would have been a completely different very different for me life. to take yeah yes when you were at school and you're getting you're getting your a's and then you go off to university did you ever dream you'd end up doing a phd at cambridge I got into Goldsmiths, which was just 10 minutes away from my house. So it was nice and reasonably close. I went there to do my undergraduate. I finished and then I went on to LSE to do my master's. When I finished my master's and I was thinking about a PhD, I applied for Goldsmiths again because I kind of knew about the university and the academics and also LSE. But I also thought, let me just try applying to, to Cambridge. To be honest, when I made the application... It was like when you apply and you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get in. I don't know how excited I should be <laughs> when you make the application. But I think it was two to three months down the line um, that I heard back from the university. And I spoke to my supervisor and she said, oh, I'm interested in your application. Can you tell me a bit more about your proposal and what you'd like to research just so I have a better idea? And I said, sure. So I spoke to her for five, ten minutes and after that, I thought, oh, my God, I've got in because she really liked the idea. And she said she's going to make a recommendation to the department about my application. But little did I know that that was just the first step of the process. <laughs> so I stopped telling people I got into Cambridge. For, <laughs> I said, wait, there's actually a few committees that the department have to meet and then the graduate boards committee and then there's another committee. And I said, um, until it goes through all these stages, I shouldn't be too excited so then I heard back from the university to say I got in and then it was kind of real and I said okay but because of the weight and because of all the had the excitement been tarnished yeah, slightly the, ex the excitement had already <laughs> come and I was celebrating by myself <laughs> that when they actually told me I was like oh okay but yeah the celebrations had already passed in my own mind but that's only when I started to tell people I didn't want to tell people in advance I think it's thrilling for changed. anyone to get into Cambridge or, or Oxford really yeah, and I think particularly for maybe someone from a refugee background or someone who's from Afghanistan, with resilience, with hard work, you can get in. There is no barrier to applying and you should feel comfortable. I think that's a remarkable story from refugee and not speaking any English right through to Cambridge doing a PhD. That's a great story, Rabia. I hope through this story I can inspire people going through a similar journey and that if you really want to and you try hard that these options are always available to you. Thank you very much, Rabiana Simi. That was Rabiana Simi speaking to Linda Ness about her experience settling into the UK after having fled the Taliban. Yeah, she was lovely, really, really nice, full of energy, full of enthusiasm. And I think what she really wanted to get across more than anything was that refugees aren't necessarily a sap in society, you know, that they want to achieve, they want to get on, and a lot of them will work very, very hard and, uh, and do like she's done. Of course, her background, parents are, you know, academics, so I guess wherever she was, she was going to be, you know, quite, quite academic. And, mm. But... That was the message, I think, that she wanted to get across. But mm. yes, I'm sure that there are a lot of people like her who have come across, who, who are really not keen on, well, us, really, thinking that they're there just to take our benefits and sit back yeah, and do absolutely. nothing. Mm. They, they really do want to work. They want to achieve. They want to add something to our society. Yes, 
Absolutely. And it did make me smile when she said that her parents were constantly saying, no, you've got to work hard because, you know, we've really we've really taken risks, which they certainly have. Mm. Escaping, you know, being smuggled yes. out, of, out of that country was nothing, you know, no mean feat, really. Mm. So, yeah, but it did make me smile because, you know, it seems my, my arguments to my daughter about, oh, you really need to work <laughs> hard seem pay, to pale into insignificance compared to, to that argument, really. Yes. <laughs> but that was Rabia Nasimi. Really interesting, as I say, speaking to her, and uh, we wish her all the best. This is 21st Century Women. You may have heard of the shoebox appeal, particularly if you have children, because schools and youth groups often get involved with gathering items for the gift boxes, which go to poor children who have very little. Sue Shorter volunteers for Operation Christmas Child and has taken part in every stage of the journey of some of these boxes. She tells Bobby Jones about her experiences. you have been working for a fantastic charity for a number of years now. Tell me about it. Why did you decide to work with this particular charity? Well, Operation Christmas Child, which is a Christian charity and part of Samaritan's Purse International, has been part of Huntingdon and uh, God Manchester churches together and very much part of outreaching at Huntingdon Methodist Church, which is where I worship. So when I was disabled out of nursing about 10 years ago, and I was still quite poorly with um, crutches and osteoarthritis of the knees, etc. I was looking for not so much to fill my time, but somewhere to express my need to help other people, having been nursing for so many years. And so I went along to the craft sessions at Huntington Methodist Church on a Thursday thinking it was going to be um, of some high quality products of knitting or craft work. In fact we describe it as Blue Peter Fragiles because we're recycling and making use of what people have donated to us as well as our capabilities and thinking about Operation Christmas Child which needs extra fillers to go in the gift filled boxes because sometimes particularly school children aren't able to fill these boxes adequately and at times we have to put in extra fillers and that's with agreement with the whole policy of Operation Christmas Child. So that's how I started. Tell me Sue, you're talking about boxes, what are these boxes? Can you describe a box for me? Yeah, so think of a shoebox of average size, so not one of the little children's ones and not one of these great big boot sizes that the young people are getting now. And wrap it. It doesn't have to be in Christmas paper, but it can be in decorative paper or you can do your own decorations on it. Then we fill it according to the leaflet of Operation Christmas Child with practical things and fun things for a child in need to receive across the world. So we put in it stationary items, lots of pens, pencils, and then we put in just simple washing items, uh, flannel maybe, some wrapped soap, uh, toothpaste, toothbrush, maybe a simple hat or gloves or scarves. Combs are always useful because they always add fun to even those that maybe have very, very short hair. And then we think of fun items, um, certainly a cuddly toy. And we also think of puzzles and instruments to blow, balls, balls are essential. So it's a gift-filled shoebox. There's lots and lots of things which can go into these parcels. Mm -hmm. How do they get distributed and where do they go? There are seven donating countries worldwide of which UK and Ireland are one of those seven. And they have within their sort of remit about another 15 countries overseas. So for UK and Ireland, it is Eastern Europe, Central Asia and certain countries in the sub-Sahara African states. The receiving country will seek out children in need, children that their local churches and workers, Christian workers, 
are involved with in the community. It may be um, a particular home or house. It may be a home orphanage. So that is where people have had their children and they have then wanted to extend their love and by taking in another 10 children and bringing them up till the age of uh, 16 and 18. We have hospitals, they have um, nurseries, orphanages, reform schools. And so then they put in like putting in an order really saying we would like so many boxes. So Swaziland, for instance, 80,000 shoe boxes leave UK for Swaziland. I know that you've had the privilege to be at both ends of the distribution chain, haven't you? Yes, it's it's very exciting to see the journey of the shoebox. We think here in UK is somebody picking up a leaflet or downloading the information and then following the instructions on the leaflet, doing a shoebox, taking the shoebox to a drop-off centre and then taking it to the processing centre where more volunteers will be processing those shoe boxes, sealing them and cartoning them and actually the volunteers will be putting them on vast lorries or in containers. So those people in UK think that's the journey of the shoebox. But I've been privileged to go out eight years ago to the Crimea which was part of Ukraine at the time and it has now gone back into Russia and then also four years ago to Swaziland. So complete contrasts. Crimea was in early uh, January which was the Christmas time for the Orthodox churches there so there were plenty of decorations but we went in a party of 10 people. We stayed in a hostel attached to a church and we had a lovely lady who cooked for us so we had food that was relevant to the area. It wasn't a sightseeing trip but we did manage to glimpse at the valley of the last charge of the light brigade so I was thrilled and we saw because uh, I loved my history and we saw places like Balaclava as well and also Soviet submarine bases so we saw a complete contrast as we were going to different churches and different distribution points again schools and we saw a lot of the Black Sea and we saw how the Orthodox churches there were responding to children in need and also outreaching there so that was exciting. So did you actually see one of the lorries which maybe your volunteers had packed unpacked at the other end and the the presents given to the children? In the Crimea we saw the cartons already stored in churches or in halls and then we saw them on the trucks and on the vans and we saw them being distributed in villages and in places where the Christian workers were working. But in Swaziland, which I went to four years ago, we went in March, so our spring, and it was their autumn. And I did have the thrill, so you can imagine, between 80,000 shoeboxes that go to that country that year they were distributing in the southwest of the country and we were there at an orphanage where there were different houses built to make communities for the children and in the centre of their complex they have a common uh, shelter and we arrived one afternoon and we went into the grounds of this orphanage and there were red brick houses and football pitches and school school um, rooms and we went in the rotunda wonderful singing 200 children singing african singing is just gets to you it's just absolutely fabulous and as we were there the sunday school leaders as well as the teachers as well as the matrons and everything were all gathered around the outside a lot of dancing as well along with singing and then we were starting to help open up the cartons and I recognised some of the writing, the running totals on the outside of the cartons. So from 80,000 that went into that country, there we were down to the last few thousand cartons that we had seen leave Huntingdon at the time. 
And within that, there were then boxes that I had helped sew up the knitting bags on a machine that we had had donated from a family, from a lady who had made a lot of hats from us in the past. And we saw the young girl who opened this box, and it was her box, and the thrill of seeing the contents that I had helped pack. And I was able to ask her, I said, well, do you like knitting? Because I remember the, the struggle of knitting up this bag on a sewing machine that really wasn't working very well. And she loved knitting. So she had found a box that, or a box had found her that was suitable for her needs. But the amazement of having that all connect so many thousands of miles apart it was something that stays with you that that is quite an adventure and quite a journey for each yes. box yes. thank you so much that's sue shorter from operation christmas child That was Sue Shorter talking to Bobby Jones about her experiences in Swaziland and the Ukraine. Following on from Christmas shoebox appeal, it has to be said that our Liz Kelly isn't the biggest fan of Christmas. So we were surprised to hear she'd been investing in a book discussing the preparations that should be made to make the perfect Christmas. She's holding it up right now. Tell us about it, Liz. I should say I'm lazy when it comes to Christmas. I just think it is so crazy, as do most people, and not in a good way. I want to return to simpler Christmases, not for nostalgia, because it's impossible to recapture the very early excitement of a Christmas produced by parents, but the kind of predictable, but okay kind of Christmas. Anyway, my Christmas is not predictable these days. Not sure what I'll do, and it makes you wonder if volunteering on Christmas Day is the best way to spend the day. I picked up a copy of Women's Institute Complete Christmas, There were two copies of the same year, 2004, on display in the Oxham shop. I bought the cheaper one. Seemed to be the same content inside, but different publishers. I used to have Sainsbury's Christmas book back in the 90s and even made one or two things in there. Perhaps a gingerbread house, but never again. I'd look at it each year, wondering whether to invest time in some card making or decoration making, but never got round to it. So when I saw the WI book, I thought I'd look and see what the perfectionists had planned for us back in 2004. I do see they say... The more we can prepare in advance, the more likely it is we'll be able to enjoy the festivities. So, now's the time to start thinking. So I'm going to dip into it a little bit. Now, um, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, so please don't take me too seriously. Christmas essentials. That's all about getting the cake, marzipan, pud and tree decks made. Well, I'm not going there, and the star mince pies are so easy, I could make them when I need them, not a month ahead, and take up freezer space. Stolen, though? I did make that a few times and it was amazing. Maybe I'll do that again. Wrapping paper. Brown paper stamped with silver prints. Not too difficult. Maybe. Then they zoom forward to 23rd and 24th of December. So by then you know whether you're going to be overloaded with family or packing up to do the visiting. I'll ignore all that. Just discuss some ideas they have. Popcorn and cranberry garlands. Right. All you need is some popcorn. Stale is best, they say, with no salt or sugar or butter. Fresh cranberries, three feet of string and a needle. Then you thread the popcorn and the cranberries alternately. Push together tightly as the cranberries shrink. Tip, if you want a longer garland, tie lengths together and cover the knots with ribbons. Suggestions, hang out in the garden after the celebrations for the birds. Now, honestly, have you ever seen this? I suppose it might be one for the start of the school hall, so if you've got time off work, but really, what with the price of fresh cranberries... Gift tags, they come under Christmas brunches. Brunches make you popular with your families. They allow you the chance to start the day in a leisurely way and let them have a lie-in. I can see the way the world is changing. So, gift tags. I quite like their idea of using a tea bag to dab over a photocopier paper for a mottled brown effect. Then you put the paper in your printer and print out some carol over and over in a fancy font, such as, they say, Blackadder ITC. Not sure if I've got that, but I might have a look for it. It also says, for an extra age feel, burn the edges with an incense stick. Make sure you have a bowl of water to hand when doing this in case of accidents. Uh, I just don't think I'd try indoors. Pine cones. Still under brunches when you're waiting for everyone to get up. We all know how to do them, but these perfectionists clean the cones first and bake them in the oven, giving the sap time to melt and glaze the cones. 
before you then uh, spray paint them. What? Pièce de résistance, but placed under Christmas leftovers, is the soap powder snowman. This is complex, so I'm not going to read all the instructions. They say it's a project that small children will love and one in which they can get really messy. But I wouldn't advise it. They're making snowmen out of a mix of soap powder and water, then formed and decorated with cloves and peppercorns and a paper carrot nose. Can't imagine it was particularly safe. Also under leftovers is apricots in brandy, bottled, and olive oil with chilli and garlic, bottled. Bit late for that, I think. Under parties and celebrations, there's gilded walnuts. Write your questions or forfeits well in advance, they advise. Crack open walnuts carefully so you have two perfect halves. Now I can see this could be a little bit frustrating. Put the forfeit inside. Put the ribbon in before gluing them shut. Then spray paint and hang up. Hmm, yeah. Making a shirt tie wrap for a bottle. Now this could be very nice. Um, it's under leftovers though. Is this where you wrap up a present you've received? Because uh, you know someone else is coming. You've got to quickly wrap something up. Anyway, shirt tie wrap for a bottle. Can be a fun way to wrap a standard shaped bottle. Basically use, for example, the Financial Times or maybe the Sporting Newspaper. You know, uh, tailor it for the person you're giving the gift to. Cover the bottle with extra overhanging paper. There are more instructions than I'm giving you. And fashion that bit into a tie for the man in your life, perhaps. Still under parties and celebrations, stolen bread and butter pudding. This uses up your uneaten stolen you spent ages doing on the 23rd of December, I suppose. No, I'm not going there. It's stale stolen or no stolen for any guests in my house. Snow globe. Now, I just don't get this one. Despite the little darlings being thrilled by it, you need a jar, glitter, glycerine and some little cake decorations. You know, the sort of little Santa tree, that kind of thing. Make your scene on the lid. Add glitter, two teaspoons. Glycerine, they say, is not essential, but will stop the glitter from forming clumps. Now screw the lid back on or superglue it. Don't let young children play with the superglue. Give the jar a shake and turn it over to watch the snow fall in on the snow scene. Uh, will it work? I think it needs some water at least. Come on, ladies, proofread. Then there's the ice pillar table deck under the drink section. You won't want to go there, but it does involve in freezing a tetrapack with a candle inside. Okay, so... These are just a few lovely ideas. I'm being very unfair about this book. There are some smashing ideas in there. And who wouldn't want beef in beer with prunes? Um, oh, that's under Cheats Christmas. Actually, that's the chapter I should probably spend more time reading. There are some nice ideas, but you can see how fashions change very, very quickly. And Christmas has been having something of a revolution. I'm going to leave it there and let you ladies discuss. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Oh, Liz, you really aren't happy about Christmas, are you? Not Christmas as it is these days, no. What, 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 what kind of Christmas would you like? Simpler. Something simpler. Simpler. Well, yeah. I mean, what, what's okay. Give me your ideal Christmas, then. Well, it, it doesn't really involve chain stores. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to go to chain stores. I sort of dream of going back to an old-fashioned high street with independent shops and brightly lit as you come up to Christmas, you know, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. people sort of scurrying around in the feverish excitement of trying to fit in, getting what they need to get before the shop's shut. Are these people all wearing Victorian clothing by any chance? <laughs> they might be. <laughs> <laughs> When do you buy your Christmas presents? I bet you wait until Christmas Eve, don't you? I do like to play chicken with the, with the retailers, yeah. I was really expecting her to say, Christmas presents? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't got time to make everything. Oh, so you like to make your Christmas presents? Well, I think it's better. Charity shop buys are pretty good, though. And I don't necessarily mean stuff that's, you know, secondhand, but charity shops have things in, especially for yes. selling yep. at, at times like Christmas. So, you know, funny chutneys and, well, just strange <laughs> things, you know, candles and stuff like that. I think they make perfect presents. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Do you roast your own chestnuts? When I can get them, yes. When do you... I mean, it's sometimes hard to find chestnuts, isn't it? You can get them quite locally at the moment. I, ha I do have a cheat there, actually. The health food shop in particular has um, a very good deal on ready-prepared chestnuts. So they're like in a vacuum pack. They're so easy. They're ready-peeled. All you have to do is just eat them. 
You don't heat them up. That's not the same if they're not roasted. Well, they won't be quite the same, but, you know, when you're making stuffings or a chestnut and something dessert, you know, that kind of thing. A chestnut dessert? That sounds horrid. Help me out here, Linda. Well, yes, you'll you'll find, Bobby, that chestnut desserts is a common habit of those who like Christmas. Yeah, people do make desserts out of chestnut. It's not just the stuffing for the uh, the old bird. Do you not find that you sort of use up your cranberries and your chestnuts in, in all sorts of things? Chuck them in with your sprouts, you know... Puddings. I think, Liz, you need to give Bobby that book. <laughs> I <laughs> think yours, she needs Bobby. ideas. It's I yours. think she's probably... Have you been doing the same Christmas dinner for the past 40 years? Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, am a probably. very boring person, yeah. <laughs> but the prettiest sight to see is the holly that will be on your own front door. So let me ask you then, Bobby, about... Um, timings on Christmas Day because this this book, this this wonderful reference book that I've been referring to, has a great breakdown of when to start cooking your dinner and what time it will be served if you follow their instructions. I mean, do you do anything like that? Well, I, I can remember one particular Christmas when it was very fashionable for you to do your turkey slowly, and we put it on, and it did all overnight oh. and by the time it came to breakfast it was burned n- no it wasn't burned but the whole house smelled of, of christmas turkey and we weren't going to have it until one o'clock so we it, it was not worth living with so we didn't do that what again. you mean it made you hungry yes oh well you see you Terrible. need your brunch you see now there's good brunch recipes in this book by all accounts what's that one artichokes what on earth do you do with artichokes at christmas Beef in beer with prunes. Well, that would get you going, wouldn't it? <laughs> and more ways than one. Pair of hop-along boots and a pistol that chooses the wish of Barney and Ben. These are women who've all got floral aprons. You do realise that. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that this year my dear daughter might actually feed us all because now she's taken on the mantle. Now she's got the youngsters, of course, you see. It's good to be underneath the Christmas tree with the children mm-hmm. and all the presents and everything so she can have the whole family caboodle thing like I've had for donkey's years. Now, you see, that that moves us neatly onto our next topic here and that is there's just been a study which says that grandparents are ruining the lives of their grandchildren. They're overfeeding them. They're keeping them in cigarette-smoked rooms They're not giving them any exercise, too many sweets. They're stuffing them until they're fat. Respond, Bobby. You're a grandmother. Yeah, so it doesn't happen in our house, I'm afraid. We tend to feed, or shall I say, we we tend to share our carrots with our grandchildren. You give them carrots? They're not donkeys. Yeah, no, they're not donkeys, but they adore carrots. So we just have to peel carrots and off they go. It's wonderful. We don't give the... And it's so much cheaper than chocolate. It's amazing. Yeah. So And yes, we do. And in fact, as soon as they come through the door, they always say, Grandad, can we go and play football? So I'm very relieved that they all go out in to the garden and I get peace and quiet. Can we play football before our carrots? Dolls that'll talk and we'll go for a walk is the hope for Janice and Jen. And mom and dad can hardly wait for school to start again. Carrot cake is wonderful. Now I do understand carrot cake. Oh, I understand carrot cake. Now you're talking. Mm. Mm. Chutneys and that sort of stuff and chestnuts in places that you don't just roast them. I can't understand those. We do. We do have to badmouth Nigella. (laughs) Yes, because leading up to Christmas, Nigella always comes on the television and she's always... So nice as well. Oh yes, so so Mm. I know they do, Mm. but they don't do it quite as well as Nigella has to be said. True, yeah, Mm -hmm. she's got a real party atmosphere about her, isn't she? And and she always. It was was goose fat one year, wasn't it? She went mad about everybody using goose fat. And you couldn't get it for love nor money. Well, this is a woman who should be 25 stones, you know, really, if if she actually ate all the stuff that she claims that she makes. I think what she does is she restricts herself to just eating those mouthfuls when she's on TV. And in between, she never eats the thing. It's carrots. 
<laughs> maybe carrots, yeah. Maybe she allows herself a carrot. Now there's a tree in the Grand Hotel. One in the park as well. The sturdy kind that doesn't mind the snow. <laughs> Ladies, what about making Christmas crackers? Oh, Liz, you do make Christmas crackers. I'm sure you do. Every year, Bobby, without fail. <laughs> and I make the mottos as well, don't you? <laughs> I do do Christmas crackers, but I do them specifically for my people. That We have them for tea. We actually have a, a Christmas tea. What do you put in the Christmas crackers, Bobby? Well, Just out of interest. Is it carrot-based? No, it's not <laughs> carrot-based. It's, uh, it's something which... They snap well, though, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> When you fight over them. That carrot's mine. Move out of the way, Granny. I shan't speak to you two anymore. <laughs> it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Soon the bells will start. I've done virtual crackers. Mm. Explain. <laughs> well, you basically, would you like to pull one with me now? Oh right! Oh. Oh. Bang! So all oh, right, and then you have to make up a motto or something, you know. Oh, I see. Oh, that's clever. It's like charades, but yeah. kind of worse. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely worse. <laughs> yeah. That will make them ring is the carol that you sing right within your heart. Yes, you could give out virtual cards as well, couldn't you? We'll expect something through the email, but no. <laughs> I posted it through your letterbox last night, Bobby. <laughs> Well, that, that was quite funny. And it is actually a very good book because there are loads of good recipes in there yeah, as well. Yeah, and unfortunately we are going to have to start thinking about it. So I thought November <sighs> is the month that people do start to... Yes, they do. The rest of us do mm. feel quite cheerful about it. You know, yeah. we're looking forward yeah. to the lights and the Christmas shopping. Good, good. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy. Oh, oh Liz, honestly, <laughs> I think we need to move on. Just to change the subject completely. <laughs> this is 21st Century Women. Kelly Mansfield is the editor of a new magazine called Speak Your Mind, a magazine published by Cambridge and Peterborough NHS Foundation Trust, which allows people to share experiences of mental and physical health challenges. Kelly spoke to Louise Wilson. I'm now joined by Kelly Mansfield, who has launched a new magazine, Speak Your Mind, in collaboration with Recovery College East. And she's here to tell us more. So hello. Hello. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. So firstly, let's start with Recovery College East then. What is it and where is it? Recovery College East is a learning environment set up for people with uh, both mental and physical health challenges. The college has um, two sites, one in, in Cambridge and one in Peterborough. Am I right in thinking it's over at Fullbourne Hospital? Is that where it's no, located? No, it, it was there. It's moved now. It's now, right. um, now on Tennyson Road okay. in Cambridge. So, so that's, it's actually in town then? Yes, so it's, it's really easily accessible from the train station. It's just a five-minute walk oh. from there. Um, so, yeah, so it's for people with mental and, and physical um, health challenges and it offers them an educational environment where they can learn new skills and learn learn from each other, which is, is quite important. And it offers a, a range of courses and workshops, um, including things like mindfulness, creative writing, becoming more confident. So it's a, it's an opportunity to, to learn new skills and to just help yourself during your recovery to, you know... Um, learning how to how to deal with any challenges that you might be facing and do you think being in that group setting really helps people Uh, do you find that some people are boosted by the fact that these are shared experiences if you like definitely definitely and are they able to talk about some of that in in these classes absolutely yeah 
Yeah, we won't, um, we won't be able to offer people the opportunity to do that, to talk about their experiences, but not to feel that that's the sole focus um, of the courses that we're running. You know, we do actually offer a chance to, to learn something as yeah. well. Um, and importantly, all of the um, all of the courses are actually designed and run by people who also have the, their um, experiences of mental health challenges. So roughly sort of how many people make up the recovery colleges in terms of the people who work there and what are the various roles because presumably people are sharing different skills if you like. It's actually quite a small team spread across um, the Cambridge and, and Peterborough sites and that's made up of people who are tutors for the courses, peer support workers who again have their own experience of of mental or physical health challenges and then the college also relies on on a number of uh, volunteers who come in to do a variety of roles and you are a volunteer yourself aren't you i am i joined i joined um recovery college with the sole intention of of creating this new uh magazine so where did the idea come from then for the magazine well it um it was actually an idea of mine that came up quite a long time ago now. Um, Often takes a while to get these things off the ground, <laughs> yes. doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but I, I used to be a, a, a magazine editor. That was that was my career, kind of, ten, fifteen um, years ago. But then um, I began to have my own mental health challenges, um, and got to the point where I couldn't work any longer. And that was for a period of about. 10 years but during that time I was I was very fortunate to to have a strong support team who um, kept me updated with support that's out there and and the kind of workshops and various different support groups that are available to people with these challenges and it was when they actually set up like a social group in in the Huntingdon area for um, for people that that were all experiencing mental health challenges and to kind of develop a group where people could share their experiences and kind of and learn from each other and so on and I became aware that not everybody is fortunate to have the level of support that I had and to have access to all the information that I had and so I came up with the idea of creating a magazine for those people who were going through mental or long-term physical health challenges. And do you think actually in one sense as well that perhaps if some people are maybe isolated or don't even have the confidence to go into a group scenario Mm -hmm. that writing into a magazine and receiving a magazine might be an easier way to kind of make that first step yes definitely yeah so you're making a in in a way I guess you're bridging a potential gap there between that first face-to-face meeting Mm. and and kind of not doing anything at all yeah Absolutely. So that's so that's really positive. So the magazine is called Speak Your Mind, yeah. and as you said, it's for people who are affected by long-term physical and/or mental illnesses. Uh, have you had much response yet? We've had a fantastic response actually through the Recovery College. We also run workshops solely for the magazine, so that people get the opportunity to to get involved and 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 to give their ideas. And it's very much become a magazine that's created for people with mental health challenges by people with mental health challenges so um so how are you getting the information out uh, about the magazine as such is it a physical magazine or is it one that's done online or it's at the moment it's just an online resource but we we hope that in in the future we might be able to turn that into a print option as well um because not everybody has access to to one very wise. I'm so glad you said that because actually there is a. I think there is an assumption that everybody has these things nowadays, and yeah. actually they don't. How would you distribute that and get it to the right people? Well, at the moment we're in contact with GP surgeries and and wards and so on across the area, and they're helping us to promote the magazine within their surgeries. We're also we've recorded some videos and and so on that we're going to use on on social media, and we hope that will attract quite a a wide range of people fantastic so what are some of the stories you've received or are putting into the magazine have you got any examples that you know might just aid people to understand more about the magazine well we're aiming to do two things with it really one is to provide information and support and the other thing 
is for people to be able to share their own experiences within the magazine. So we've had people sending in their their personal stories, you know, the journey that, that they've been through. We're including things that people use as, as wellness tools. So in our last issue, we had a, a chap that is really into his painting and he finds that that really helps with um, with his mental health. Yeah. And, and it includes things like poems and, and quotes and just things that people really find inspirational. inspirational. Yeah. And then there are the more kind of factual, informative articles. Um, in the in the first issue, we've covered things like taking time off work and your rights to, to that time off work and the processes you need to go through. And so so things like benefits, perhaps, yes, that people might be able to access. And just the kind of um, legal aspects of, of taking time off work and what your rights are and that kind of thing. And then there are other issues like um, financial issues. You know, people often struggle with paying the bills or, or going through the um, the whole benefits process can be can be really tough particularly if you're you know experiencing some really hard mental challenges then uh, it's know, sort of the last thing you want to have to worry about isn't yeah, it yeah yeah and and are you providing within the magazine as well then presumably you're providing information about where people can go yes. um to to access that information as well yes yes we have a section which is kind of a uh, i guess a calendar of events and workshops and things like that that are, that are coming up um, over the next few months that, and um, how you know how people can get involved in those and we've all also included quite a large directory of sources of help and information and, and, and people who write stories their own personal experiences etc mm-hmm. do they have to have I, I, this sounds may sound a bit daft really do they have to have come out the other end before they can write something or can they even be in the middle of their you know in the process perhaps of getting treatment and and maybe sharing experiences about the treatment that they're receiving and how it's helping them thus far and and how they hope perhaps hopes for the future definitely definitely we don't we would don't want it to be a magazine that's like oh look every, everything's fine now everyone's doing better because that's not a, a, a true representation of and also of I guess it are. might put some people off who are not yeah. in that place and actually thinking oh well it's all right for you you know yes. yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and so uh, if people do want to make contact mm-hmm. where can they find you how do they submit or you know get get information from that well we've set up an email address specifically for the magazine so um, anyone who who wants to get in contact whether they've just got questions about it or whether they want to submit something for inclusion they can send it directly to that email address and that is symmagazine at cpft.nhs.uk fantastic and where can they access the magazine to read that's on the cpft website which is the Cambridgeshire and peterborough nhs trust it's on that website which again is uh, cpft.nhs.uk and then if you just click on recovery college east um, and that will take you straight to the magazine brilliant i mean i was looking at the um the cover of the magazine Mm -hmm. and it's someone reaching up to someone else on the top of a mountain yeah and is that how you see the process if you like that someone has kind of already reached the top of the mountain and they're just lending a helping hand to kind of pull that person up yeah definitely that that was uh that was one of the main features of of the first issue was about peer support so people who have their own lived experience of mental or physical health challenges and are now reaching out to other people to be able to you know help them along their journey as well brilliant well thank you so much i think it's really a great thing that you're doing and uh, and hopefully lots more people will a, get involved, but also through the process, um, sort of come out the other end if you like. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for joining me today, Kelly. Thank you for having me. That was Kelly Mansfield talking to Louise Wilson about the new magazine Speak Your Mind. You can find a link to the magazine on our Facebook page. The music was You Gotta Be by Desiree. And that's all we've time for on this edition of 21st Century Women. Doesn't it fly, ladies? Yes. It really does. Our thanks go to Rabiana Simi, Kelly Mansfield and Sue Shorter, as well as our contributor this month, Louise Wilson. 
If you're listening to HCR 104 FM, next up is a country show with John and Jackie Manders. And in Cambridge 105, it's 105 Sport. This show will be available as a podcast on iTunes and on Mixcloud. We'll be back in December. Until then, it's goodbye from Bobby Jones. Goodbye. From Liz Kelly. Bye. And from me, Linda Ness. See you next time. <laughs>